0: We Shouldn't Talk About This may contain graphic descriptions and or explicit content that may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Hi everybody, I'm Key. And I'm V. And this is We Shouldn't Talk About This.
1: Hello, Key.
0: Hi, V. How are you today?
1: Oh, I am doing pretty, pretty good. It's been a good day. How about yourself?
0: It's been a good day. It's a Friday, and the sun is still out, even though it's almost 8 o'clock. It's it's going pretty good. But I do want to say I apologize in advance to anyone who was disappointed we didn't have an episode last week. It was 100% my fault. I had a lot on my plate, and I just could not record.
1: Well, I apologize also, and thank you, Keith, for taking full responsibility because I had nothing to do with it.
0: <laughs> well, thanks for, I guess I threw myself under the bus, but thanks for not trying to stop the bus. You just full speed ahead.
1: Yeah, I'll, I will attest to the situation.
0: <laughs> yeah, that bus was going, and I let it go. I didn't do nothing. So... When Speed 3 comes out, we know who to cast. <laughs> Wait, wasn't there, was there already a Speed 3? I... No, Speed 2 was the boat. Yeah, Speed 3. You're number one because you will not slow down. Let the bus keep it moving. <laughs> Speed,
1: Speed 3 had a trailer. Oh, It may have been a fake trailer, though oh
0: Hmm. well whichever one is next make sure you audition for it
1: got it i'll be there with keanu yes so we have a treat today for our listeners if they sit and stay they'll get this treat
0: Ooh. i'm guessing i also will get the treat because i have no idea what it is
1: Well, Key, today we are talking about crimes against prized pets.
0: Oh. Now could you
1: imagine could you imagine having uh like a dog that you trained and bred perfectly and like, you know, won awards back to back at different shows, but then something dastardly happens to it. Could you imagine?
0: Oh, my gosh. I could not.
1: Well, I cannot either because I would go on a manhunt if something happened to any of my pets.
0: I am kind of, sort of, on... Okay, I guess I just don't get attached to my pets that tightly. I know, I feel like a horrible person saying that.
1: Yeah, it's crazy. It's like you're comparing like, the name of dog dog.
0: No, no, I'll give it a real name. Like, okay, so I have a lizard, but you know, she's very sometimey. Sometimes she likes to be cuddly, sometimes she doesn't. And then I'm like, you know, if you just like ran out the door, I wouldn't chase you. Like I, I just wouldn't.
1: You let nature run its course?
0: I would. Like, you know, whatever whatever happens happens if she gets free and you know runs away then hey it was meant to be like that
1: oh my gosh <laughs> well listeners be happy that key is not your owner she'll <laughs> she let you go she would not not stop you
0: if somebody stole her i would try to get her back but you know if she just left of her own volition it is what it is
1: It is what it is.
0: Yeah, I mean, hey, it's her life. If you want to be out there riding the rails and scrounging for food instead of being hand-fed premium worms, that's on you. Who am I to stop you? Very
1: true. Very true. I get that.
0: No. Do you remember the dog we had, Bear? He used to, like, break loose all the time, but he always came back.
1: I think I, remember, nah, I think I remember Bear. I think so.
0: He was, like, s- kind of small and fluffy, and he was all black with, like, a white patch, and he was, like, kind of sort of standoffish, but, you know, he was hard-headed, but he was really sweet. It was when we had Max. Yeah, dog mean Max? Maximilian? Oh, my gosh, you don't remember Maximilian?
1: I don't think so. The,
0: it was the wolf husky.
1: Mm, not ringing any bells
0: wow oh my gosh anyway bear and max we had both of them at the same time and bear used to always like get out and run wild and he would come back though but he was super sweet like i I did love bear and, and every time i go by that neighborhood we used to live in i look for him like he will really be out there even though it's been like 20 years or so
1: That would be an old dog. It would be 140 dog ears.
0: And he would still probably be running free. Oh, little bear.
1: Little bear. Okay, I think this week you should start our journey down a pet thievery or pet missing lane.
0: Okay, well, I do have a tail. It's... Not so much. I guess you really wouldn't call it a pet. It was more of a show horse? A racehorse.
1: horse? Uh, okay, okay.
0: But, you know, I'm pretty sure that the guy really had attachments to it, like a pet. I'm sure he did. 100% sure. At least the person who was taking care of it probably did. So... Gather around, children. It's time for a tale of crime. Now, my story is about Shigar, the thoroughbred. And Shigar was a thoroughbred Bay Colt with a white blaze, which is uh, like the front of their face, their nose part, like from the eyes to the nose, that part was white, four okay. white socks, and a walleye. And a walleye is a term used when instead of a full blue eye, the eye um, is partially blue, partially brown. So he was foiled, which means born in horse language. (laughs) He was foiled on March 3rd, 1978 at Shishun, the oldest continuously operative stud in both Ireland and England and was the first Irish farm purchased by the Aga Khan family in 1923. It's the private stud of the Aga Khan IV, which is um, Prince Shah Karim al-Hassani, and it's near the Carraga racehorse in County Kildare, Ireland. Shigar was sired by great-nephew, a British stallion. Shigar's dame was Charmeen, a seventh-generation descendant of Mumtaz Mahal, a horse that is described by National Sporting Library as one of the most important brood mares of the 20th century. She must have been putting out Racehorse after racehorse after racehorse, like all her babies. I don't know what you call baby horses. Must have been winners.
1: Yeah, that's pretty impressive. That's pretty impressive, uh, you know, title to receive.
0: Yeah. Like, so, Shigar came from a good lineage, and he was sent to training with Michael Stout in 1979. As the Aga Khan's second year of sending horses to England, so according to Michael Stout and Ghislaine Dorian, who was the manager of the Aga Khan's Irish Studs, Shigar was easy to break and had a good temperament. He responded very well to training. Now, on September 19th, 1980, Shigar ran his first race the Chris Plate, with Lester Piggott as his jockey. The race was open to two-year-old Col- Colts and Geldings, and it was over a one-mile straight at Newberry. Chigar won by two-and-a-half lengths, which is not a standard measurement. It's like the length of the actual horse. So, it would be two-and-a-half shigars behind was the next horse. Jeez. After the race, Stout said the horse would run one more race that year to gain experience before resting until the following year. Shigar's second race was the one mile William Hill Futurity Stakes at Doncaster run on October twenty fifth, nineteen eighty. He was again ridden by Piggott and Shigar came in second. Now, here's a little kind of a breakdown of his races that led to what happened to him. On April 25th, 1981, at the Guardian newspaper classic trial run at Sandown, Shigar raised his pace after a mile and won by 10 lengths in a nine-horse, one-and-a-quarter-mile race. That's a fast horse. links (laughs) Links <laughs> right. Wow. On June 3rd, 1981, Shigar ran in the Derby, set over a one and a half mile course at the Epsom Downs Racecourse in Surrey. The Derby is a Group One flat race open to three-year-old Thoroughbred colts and fillies. Shigar was well paced and moving through the runners at. Tattenham Corner, which was the final bend of the course, Chigar took the front of the race and opened up a lead over the other horses and won by 10 lengths again. Following Chigar's Epsom Derby win, a group of U.S. horse owners had offered $40 million to syndicate the horse. The Aga Khan turned down the offer and instead decided to syndicate Sugar for 10 million at 250,000 pounds. So these are, he did it for 10 million pounds at 250,000 pounds for each of the 40 shares. So basically, he divided the horse into 40, and if you had the money, you could get a share of them and that was a record price at the time.
1: Mighty impressive.
0: Now the AgaCon kept six shares for himself and the other shares were sold individually to buyers from nine countries. The shareholders had the option each year of selecting a mayor to be covered or of selling that option on. The stud fees were 60,000 to 80,000 per cover which meant that each shareholder could expect to make a profit from studs within four years. Shigar had a break of almost a month until he ran in the King George VI and Queen Elizabeth Diamond Stakes at Ascot on July 25, 1981. The race was slow-paced to start, but Shigar accelerated to win by four lengths. That entered him into what would be his final race, the St. Ledger States at Doncaster on September 12, 1981. Now, Shigar was running well in the race, but on the final straight, when the jockey tried to get him to accelerate to the front, the horse would not respond. Shigar came in fourth, which was 11 and a half lengths behind the winner. Surprised by the manner of the loss, Stout and Aga Khan ran a series of tests on Shigar. All showed that the horse was in good health, and he worked well in training after the race. But unwilling to risk the horse without knowing what had happened at the Saint Leger, the Aga Khan did not enter him into the Arc, which was like a really big race that was coming up, and said he retired him to the Ballymeni stud near Kuriga. So he had a very short-lived season, but he was really a good racehorse. And I, I kind of give it to the Aga Khan. Like he was like, he did not want to risk the horse's life by forcing him to run if something was wrong and they just couldn't figure out what. Right, right. So that's why I say I think he really did care about the horse because, you know, he could have easily been like, okay, well, all the tests are good. Let him race.
1: Yeah, let's get back out here.
0: Right, let's make me some money. But instead, he he retired him so that he could just be a stud, which I'm sure very few horses would complain about. Now, in (laughs) 1982, which was his only running season, Shigar covered 44 mares, which 36 files were produced, 17 Colts, and 19 fillies. At the start of February 1983, Shigar's second stud season was about to begin and he was in high demand and had a full book of 55 mares to cover. He was expected to earn 1 million pounds for the season. So, he was in high demand, like 55 mayors. Could could you you stud 55 women for a million pounds? Don't answer that. Okay. (laughs) Now, on February 8th, 1983, around 8.30 p.m., three men, all armed and wearing masks, entered the house of Jim Fitzgerald the head groom at the Ballymany. They were part of a group of at least six and possibly up to nine men. One of the men said to him, we've come for Chigar. We want $2 million for him. Fitzgerald's family was locked into a room while he was taken at gunpoint out to Chigar's stable and was told to put the horse in the back of a horse box. The horse box was driven away and Fitzgerald was told to lie on the floor of a van, and his face was covered with a coat. He was driven around for four hours before being released near the village of Kilcock, approximately 20 miles from Ballymany He was told not to contact Garda Shokana, which is the Irish police, or he and his family would be killed. But to wait until the gang contacted him. He was given the code phrase King Neptune, which the gang would use to identify themselves. Fitzgerald walked to the next village and called for his brother to pick him up. On arrival back to Ballymany, he rang Gisang D- Dorian to inform him of the theft and urge him not to call the police because of the threats that had been made. Dorian attempted to reach the Aga Khan in Switzerland to inform him and then called Stan Cosgrove, Shigar's vet, who was also a shareholder. Costco, Cosgrove contacted a retired Irish Army captain, Sean Barry, who was the manager of the Irish Thoroughbred Breeders Association. Barry contacted Alan Dukes, a friend of his who was serving. As the Minister for Finance, who suggested that Barry speak to Michael Noonan, the Minister for Justin, Justice, excuse me. Noonan and Dukes told him to call the Gardai. So, all of that playing telephone just to call yeah. the police at the end. That is crazy. They were like, just call the police. <laughs> so, by 4 a.m., Dorian had managed to contact the Aga Khan who told him to phone the police right away. They were then contacted, but it was eight hours after Shigar had been stolen and any possible trail had already gone cold. So, the first call from the thieves was on the night Shigar was stolen. Fitzgerald was not back at the Ballymania at that time and had not had the chance to tell the news of the theft to anyone. The call was um, basically pointless because like, nobody knew what was going on. So, The next call was to Jeremy Maxwell, a horse trainer based in Northern Ireland. The caller demanded 40,000 pounds, although his figure was later raised to 52,000 pounds. Maxwell was told that the negotiations would only be with three British racehorse journalists, Derek Thompson and John Oaksey of ITV and Peter Campling for, from The Sun. The men were told to be at the Europa Hotel in central Belfast by Thursday evening. Now, for those who don't know, the Europa was known as the most bombed hotel in Europe after having suffered multiple bomb attacks during what the time that was called the Troubles.
1: The Troubles.
0: Yes. So when the three sports journalists arrived at the Europa they were contacted by phone and told to go to the Maxwells house and await further calls there were a series of calls to the Maxwells house later that night and at 1:30 a.m. Thompson managed to keep the caller talking for over 90 seconds which would have been enough to trace the call but he was told that the person who was doing the call intercepts had finished his shift at midnight and gone home. So what? Yeah.
1: Oh my gosh.
0: So at seven a.m. on February twelfth, another call was put through to Maxwell's house, which said things had gone wrong and Shigar was dead. On that same day the thieves contacted the negotiators and said that proof had been left at the Rosenare Hotel. When this was picked up, it contained several Polaroids Polaroid pictures showing Shigar. Some of the pictures showed the horse's head next to a copy of the Irish news dated February eleventh. Cosgrove saw the photograph and confirmed that it was definitely him. Although he added, it wasn't proof the horse was still alive. At that point, you want to get much more definitive evidence. If you'd seen the complete horse, it would have been different. But this was just the head. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, one call said, you know, things went awry. The horse is gone. The next call was like, nope, here's proof. He's still alive. We were just playing. So (laughs) looks like they just couldn't make up their minds on how to threaten them.
1: Here Yeah, they weren't they weren't communicating too well on that.
0: No. Now, in the telephone call from the thieves to the negotiators at 10:40 p.m. on February 12th, it was explained that the syndicate were not satisfied with the pictures of the horse, which they explained did not constitute enough proof. The caller told the negotiators, "Quote, if you're not satisfied, that's it." The call was ended and the thieves never made any further contact. The syndicate attempted to reestablish contact with the gang, but there was no response, and they couldn't get back in contact with them. Now, the syndicate committee put together a full report which examined the possible motives behind the theft, they concluded that the death of shigar was either either undertaken to create confusion and publicity rather than obtaining money or that the negotiations were undertaken with naivete they reached this conclusion by after taking a number of factors into account many of the demands were physically impossible the ransom demanded demand included 100-pound notes, which did not exist.
1: What? (laughs) Right. We want want $1,000 bills for this guy.
0: In one call at 5.45 p.m. to Dorian in Ballymany, he was told to deliver the 2 million pounds to Paris before noon the following day. In a call at 5 p.m., the Paris negotiators were told to get two million pounds by the end of the night after the Parisian banks had already closed. In another call, the negotiators and Paris were told to get agreement for a ransom, but also that he shouldn't contact anyone in Ireland despite some of the shareholders being there. It also became clear during the course of the negotiations that the gang thought that the Aga Khan was the sole owner of the Shigar, or of Shigar. They had no knowledge of the other shareholders and did not take into account the complexity of liaisoning and organizing all 35 shareholders into a position of agreement. Which would be, you know, hard to get them to agree, because you know you can't negotiate or pay on behalf of the others. You're never a hundred percent sure that shigar would even be returned after the money was paid. Right. Right. And if the kidnappers' demands were met, it would make every high value horse in Ireland, a target for future thefts. So the shareholders themselves were like divided on the approach. Now, uh, Brian Sweeney, a veteran of the American racehorsing industry thought that quote, if you ask a mother who had her, who had a child that had been kidnapped, if a ransom should be paid, I think the answer would be yes. And quickly. Another shareholder, Lord Derby, disagreed and said, quote, if ransom money is paid for this horse, then there is a danger of other horses being kidnapped in the years to come. And that simply cannot be tolerated. So I think I think they both had valid points like but again, it's 35 people that have to come to an agreement.
1: Yeah, I come to a solid conclusion. That's gonna be very, very tough.
0: Right. So that is another thing that led the syndicate to believe that they did not know that Shigar was like property of shareholders, not of one sole person, which would be the Aga Khan. Now, Shigar's body has never been recovered or identified. There have been several claims of equine skeletons being that of Shigar, though. Des Ledon, a specialist horse vet with knowledge of equine pathology, has assisted the police in several instances where a horses' remains may have been those of Shigar, but unfortunately it was not. However, Ledon retained some strands of hair from Shigar's mane and tail, which he says may contain sufficient DNA to confirm an identification now in 1999 in honor of Shigar, the Shigar Cup was inaugurated at Goodwind or excuse me Goodwood Racecourse in a format that put a European team of jockeys against one from the Middle East. The race was later moved to the Ascot Racecourse and is a competition between four teams: Great Britain and Ireland, Europe, and the rest of the world, and an all-woman team. The winners of the competition are presented with the trophy showing Shigar, and this was donated by the Aga Khan. On the twentieth anniversary of Shigar's Derby win, a bronze statuette of the horse was presented to the winning jockey. A statue of Shigar stands in the grounds of Gilltown Stud, one of the Aga Khan's Irish stud farms. The story of Cigar's Theft was made into a TV play with Stephen Ray and Gary Waldhorn broadcast in March 1986 as part of the BBC's Screen 2 anthology series. The The play was based on the few known facts plus a backstory described as plausible by Hugh Hebert reviewing for The Guardian. The theft was also dramatized as the film Chigar directed by Don Lewiston and starring Ian Holm and Mickey Rourke. There have also been two TV documentaries, Who Kidnapped Chigar broadcast on RTE in March 2004, and searching for a cigar broadcast on BBC One in June of 2018. So, even as recently as two years ago, this is still a big mystery, and no one got paid. They never found the horse. It's just up in the air.
1: That is so crazy. I mean, it's a horse. You can't hide a horse too well.
0: Right. And you would think, okay, if they're not going to pay you, at least turn them like into a stud for your own horses and produce more racehorses.
1: Right, exactly. Like like you use use the horse for its purpose and then get like crazy good bred horses that you can resell then. Right. You money that bad.
0: But I mean I guess you know you could never tell anyone interested like who the stud was because you know, then the jig is up at that point.
1: You could totally say this is a relative, um, it's his father or his stud is a relative of the famous Shigar. Like, you can say that, you know, like a wink wink. Well, not a wink wink, but you can say <laughs> it's a relative of Shigar, and they'll be like, Whoa, maybe this will be the next Shigar, Ch- the second,
0: maybe. But it's sad, like you know, they don't even know what what even happened to the horse.
1: That is pretty sad. I hate that because I'm really glad, like the owner or the um, the, the jockey, jockey, right? That's that's what we're calling them.
0: Uh, I don't know what what you're about. Finish the sentence, and I can tell you.
1: Oh, was like was um. Sensitive of the horse's condition instead of just putting him back on the track after.
0: Oh no! Uh, that was the owner, the Aga Khan, and oh, the, the Khan. trainer.
1: Oh, okay, okay, okay. So never mind. I was like the jockey, some credit, but I don't need to give the jockey any credit.
0: No, no credit for the jockey.
1: Well, that was quite quite sad, and a mystery to say the least. Right. And now, um, now we're gonna downsize our animal to the size of a miniature poodle oh key we are going to talk about the story of masterpiece the p- the poodle
0: okay i really thought you were gonna say master p as in the rapper but okay
1: i mean you'll probably say uh and then, nah, 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 about <laughs> the
0: through this story but you know i refuse <laughs> all right
1: so so so. Count Alexis Pulaski was born in, 19, in 1895. He was often referred to as a White Russian, a term applied to anti-communists who fought the Bolsheviks in Russian, in the Russian Civil War. Following their defeat, he joined a large movement of exiles, and years later he landed in America, He landed on American soil in 1926. Pulaski possessed the get the gab. As the Post later remarked, Pulaski is the kind of man who could sell a crate of Boy Scout handbooks to Soviet Union leader Nikita Khrushchev. His wit quickly infused him with the upper echelon of New York society, and he also dabbled in the world of dognum, selectively breeding and showing Doberman Pinschers as he had in Russia since 1912, while simultaneously running photography and groom businesses to eliminate success. Mm. But his world was changed in 1939 when he dog sat the poodle of his friend Gilbert Kahn. He immediately fell in love, so he switched breed affinities from Dobermans to Poodles and never looked back. He had found his calling.
0: That's a drastic change,
1: I definitely think so. Because, like, Dobermans are very, like, uh, like statuette looking dogs, and like, you know. Dogs you don't want to look at for a long time. And then poodles are dogs that you want to just like, oh my gosh, like look at the poodle, look at his hair. Like, you know, poodles like you are wanna... mean
0: though. They're very mean. Yeah, I- I've
1: met a poodle in real life and it-, it like growled at me when I looked at it in its eye, but it was like a regular sized poodle. It was like pretty big. You
0: no, know, our cousin had a, I don't think it was a mentor poodle, but it wasn't big either. It's kind of like, well, maybe it was like miniature because it was kind of on the small side. But that thing was mean.
1: Yeah, yeah. Masterpiece is bigger than a Chihuahua, but he's not a large dog by any means. Probably like a Jack Russell size.
0: Yeah. Okay. Then maybe. Uh, I think. Darn, I think that dog's name was Coco. Maybe. Maybe it was uh, a miniature then because it it really wasn't big, but I, it mm. was like very mean. And uh, our cousin, Claude, would have to, like, carry me in the house so the dog wouldn't bite me.
1: Oh, man, that's a mean dog.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I wonder what's up with poodles. Jeez. I don't know. They just have a bad temperament, I guess. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right. So with financing from his friend, Khan, in our stylist event, Pierre Paul, another well-to-do heir and poodle man, Pulaski opened Poodles Incorporated at 51 West 52nd Street in New York, New York in 1945. Just a couple doors down from the famous and still operating 21 Club. Poodles Incorporated combined all the viable canine-related industries of the time. Operating as a grooming salon, a boarding kennel, and an assortment of high-end dog furnishings. A Tiffany among dog suppliers, if you will. Ooh la la. (laughs) but unlike other specialty dog shops it catered strictly to its breed of choice that means poodles and poodles only with extreme prejudice
0: wow like so you could come in with like a prize winning pomeranian and they'd be like get that trash out of here we yeah. only serve poodles
1: yeah they would they would scowl at you and spray you with water bottles and everything it's-
0: This poodle world is a harsh, harsh world.
1: I guess the poodle breeders just means the poodles.
0: I guess. The rough streets of poodle world.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you go to New York, New York, those poodles are rough. Mm. This exclusivity inevitably led to a social club vibe to Poodles Incorporated, which also served as a showcase for the dogs. Pulaski had begun to breed around what he called the pursuit of happiness philosophy, contending that the poodle's true end in life is to supply his master with a maximum of pleasure. See, this guy has a gift of gab. You, like, that, that's a nice sentence right there.
0: Yeah, but I don't think poodles feel that way, though.
1: Yeah, I don't think they care. I don't either. Mm-hmm. Pulaski achieved his pinnacle upon the birth of a litter on August 4th, 1946. As he became quick completely taken aback by the demeanor, temperament, and charm of its largest pup. After eight weeks of observation and training, he registered the great dog with the AKC under the resolute name Pulaski's Masterpiece. Later, Pulaski reflected it was as though Masterpiece himself was the very beginning of the breed.
0: Wow, he was deep into this.
1: He loved Masterpiece. Masterpiece made a grand debut less than a year later in the puppy class at Westminster in 1947. He barely survived a battle with distemper, which is a viral disease causing fever, coughing, and an excessive discharge of mucus. Masterpiece Masterpiece was sent off to New Jersey to recover for several weeks. Recovered and physically matured, in a short time, he gathered enough points at regional shows to achieve a championship title, and added obedience in utility titles, and other in other, and only a few short weeks after that, which was a record at the time. He was, in fact, the first toy dog to ever achieve the the three championship, obedience, and utility. Wow. Yeah, it's crazy. He was. Pulaski was on it with this dog. He wanted everyone to know who this dog was. He set out to prove the dog's men- mental mantle beyond New York, traveling to Chicago, St. Louis, and Los Angeles, where he was allegedly welcomed by parties of up to 100 guests and an equal number of dogs. I believe it. <laughs> Pulaski Deemed Masterpiece um, destined for even greater things beyond the sport. Koleski devised devise a singular, rigid, masculine cut for Masterpiece, exposing only the midriff, which he hoped would cast the dog in a less pigeonholing light than the pom-pom continental cut required in the show ring. So even he even went beyond the regulation to have the regular poodle cut he was like, no, no, no. Masterpiece is going to show his midriff, and that's it. Okay. Yeah, he, Masterpiece set his own standards. So I get see. with the program. Pulaski commissioned a complete set of clothes, also, both amusing and serviceable, including pajamas, bathrobes, and wrinkles for Masterpiece. With Pulaski serving as full time press agent, Masterpiece was assigned his own bodyguard who supervised his diet and head-fed him, head him during moody spells, a personal beautician who saw to his regular pampering, a former lion tamer who was imported to provide private instruction and party tricks, and a traveling companion, Lucy Kopasek, who saw the world with Masterpiece.
0: A lion tamer? Plasky is getting out of hand right now. He is getting all the way out of hand.
1: Plasky is pretty out of pocket right now.
0: All the way. He can't even see the pocket at this point.
1: <laughs> Cocktail parties at Pulaski's Upper East Side apartment were said to include guests from Mexico, France, Budapest, Boston, San Francisco, L.A., and Rio de Janeiro. Representatives from the press, as well as artists, veterinarians, investment bankers, and ladies and gentlemen of leisure. This was in 1940. Forty something, late late nineteen forties. Like so, this is impressive stuff right here.
0: I agree. I wish I could be a lady of leisure.
1: Maybe it's not too late for you. Hope not. Well, meshpiece would perform on command, walking on his front or hind paws, so he could do a handstand or regular standing. Communicating through grunts and growls, famously to the question. Are you a communist masterpiece? He would shake his head and vigorous denial.
0: I think that was a cover up. You think so? <laughs> yeah. You don't have to be vigorous with it. A simple mm mm will suffice.
1: Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, you put too much. You put too much English on it, and they are to be like, "Wait a second.
0: Right. Too much emphasis means it's suspicious.
1: Although disapproving tricks for their own sake, Pulaski claimed that Masterpiece's exceptional mental and muscular apparatus should be regularly exercised and refined. At Poodle's Incorporated, 20 paintings of Poodle fantasies were put on display as a nightclub harpist strummed in the background. The centerpiece was Masterpiece and his harem atop ornamental cushions maintaining an elegant tranquility. It was most important that Pulaski's Poodle Appeared neither chained nor confined. They reposed at their leisure, were gracious to all comers, and proved by their behavior how easily they could be trained to perfection. Masterpiece's carrying case was designed as a deep picture frame befitting his name, and eventually he was accompanied by armed guards at either side of the animate masterpiece.
0: Wow. That's all I can say.
1: (laughs) Masterpiece became so famous that Pakistani Prince Ali Khan tried to purchase him as a gift for his actress wife, Rita Hayworth, at the sum of $25,000. Pulaski balked at the thought of parting with his beloved companion, but claimed the purchase price apt as Masterpiece earned $11,000 a year as a stud dog and model necessitating his own bank account at Chase National. Pulaski claimed that he refused by shake of of the head to mate with a female for less than $500 and ultimately sired approximately 350 dogs. Whoa. Yeah, maybe uh, it sure is much easier in the dog world than in the horse world.
0: Yeah, because I think you can only have one horse at a time.
1: Yeah, that's very Possibly true.
0: Possibly maybe two, but I don't think they have more than that.
1: Mm-hmm. Much, piece, much Piece was said to test and use all the products he endorsed for Poodles Incorporated. Not only shampoos, towels, matches, and bowls, but even a perfume called Kennel Number Nine.
0: Okay, I am so done with this right now. <laughs> Kennel Number Nine.
1: Channel number nine. I'll look that up on eBay. See how much it's going for.
0: That the level of ridiculous that this man is going through.
1: I mean, you you get you get a man with his passion, with his with his drive that Pulaski has, and you're gonna go beyond above me on. He truly did. Matthews also appeared as a spokesperson in ads for hosiery, shoes, drapery, and telephones, some of which graced the pages of Vogue magazine. Now, his traveling companion, Lucy um, Kopasek, reported that upon the arrival in Paris, Life magazine photographers started popping up everywhere and the phone rang off the hook with press requests. Designer Marcel Rokas invited them to a show in which he presented a gray wool robe dressed called Masterpiece. The model walked down the runway to the platform and Cobasake handed her the Masterpiece whom performed beautifully. At a local dog show even Masterpiece became unsettled by massive crowds. Like you know you would get anxiety dogs would get anxiety in big crowds that's normal and had to be hoist atop a 15 platform awaiting police rescue. Oh, my gosh. Air France gave him a farewell party for 20 friends at the airport restaurant, where a special menu was prepared with a dish named in his honor. He continued in similar fashion to Duyville, the Hog, Brussels, Antwerp, and beyond.
0: Wow, so this was a famous little dog
1: yeah, this dog was world famous. Let me see. So Matchpiece fever only only continued to heighten in his native land. And one of Plassey's greatest stunts deemed the miracle on fifty seventh Street upon the week leading up to the Westminster Kennel Club dog show, Matchpiece led a parade of his comrades from Poodles Incorporated up Fifth Avenue to the department store, Milgram's. There, the dogs joined a display of fa- faux fur articles modeled after the curled poodle coat. From nine in the morning to eight, sorry, from nine in the morning to six at night, a playpen of Pulaski poodles occupied one window, and masterpiece reclined in his red velvet-lined shadow box, another. Wrote the store's publicity director, for over a week, people in mid-Manhattan suddenly became more poodle conscious than ever before police were required to control the clamoring crowds wow that's all that's all you can say about this story that's all you can say in 1953 two of masterpiece's children diego and sushi accompanied claire (laughs) you got diego and you got sushi what's going
0: on that's cute
1: (laughs) Accompanied Claire Booth-Luce, Claire Booth-Luce, as American ambassador to Italy, he had become a regular staple of talk shows, climaxing in a two-month-long stint co-hosting the Dog Show of Champions with Stella Destin. He held his own each week with hunting retrievers and hounds, German Shepherd drill teams, and seeing-eye dogs, and a gang of Great Danes who he leaped over effortlessly. He then modeled Easter ensembles on the Dave Garrow Show, which was his last public appearance. Only a few weeks later in late May, Plasky's entourage went downstairs to relay a message to a Pudu's Incorporated staff member before returning upstairs. Minutes later, Pulaski called his superstar to seduce potential customers who had wandered into the store, and Masterpiece did not respond. The store was searched frantically from top to bottom, but Masterpiece was nowhere to be found. Pulaski recounted the greatest dog in the world had disappeared from the face of the earth. The police were quickly notified. Over a course of several weeks, a 13-state alarm was sounded. Newspapers ran headlines, and Gotham Hosiery Company distributed 3,500 flyers seeking the return of its folk dog. An ample reward was offered with promise of no questions asked. Even a puppy sired by Masterpiece was offered in exchange for the return of the Foundation
0: Poodle. I don't want no knockoff masterpiece.
1: <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> I want the real thing. Oh, we'll give you one of his puppies. I want that.
1: It's not the same.
0: It is not the same.
1: Just Johnny was selected from the remaining Pulaski stock as the dog most resembling his father. He was trotted out on televisioning on television appearing as appearing with Pulaski, who recounted all the Match marked characteristics, pleading for his safe passage back to him only one person came forward with credible information, claiming to have seen a small gray poodle leaving Poodles Incorporated with a dark-haired woman in a red coat. A fashionably a fashionable lady with a poodle dutifully healing by her side was at, the time, at that time an increasingly common sight. However, this particular duo had resonated with the witness due to the absence of a leash. Mashpiece would obey anyone who gave commands in dog show fashion Pulaski reflected. The crime of which there were few clues was even reenacted on the Dave Garraway show, of which Mashpiece was a recurring guest. Ponderously, it showed the the prized dog being removed from a cage which is never mentioned in other resemblances of that infamous day. Whether it was A simply faulty memory, a fib to make the count appear less careless, or hints towards a more sinister cover-up is unknown. And in July 2nd, 2009, another reenactment was made by Comedy Central's Drunk History by co-host Manu Agapian, who recounted the events in history of of Masterpiece the Poodle. One of one of the craziest theories is perhaps Matched just decided to leave all the pomp and circumstance behind or at least take a brief sprite. It was not the first time he had disappeared. Once at nine months old, he fled into the woods. He was on his own for three days in the New Jersey countryside before returning, part and perky to the doorsteps of the kennel. A year later, when Pulaski ran an errand, he trotted out of ink and fled into traffic into a state, into a Park Avenue linen shop, which called the police and returned him home. As Pulaski himself admitted, he undoubtedly realized that such a smart dog had little need of human subs- of lim- of human supervision, whether by his own lucid choosing or not. Matchpiece was on to a new adventure from which he would never return. And that's my story.
0: Damn. He was like bigger than the Beatles.
1: Bigger than the Beatles for sure.
0: This little show dog was just, wow, that's crazy. And then he was stolen and no one knows what happened to him.
1: No, without a trace. I'm really excited for you to see the picture of him. Because, um, the picture that can be found on the internet is him inside of his, um, his frame doghouse. You saw it?
0: Yeah. And it's like, I, I'm totally on board with the whole thing. I mean, his name was Masterpiece. Why not have his little carrier look like a frame?
1: It's so cute. And like his little beady eyes. (laughs) Like,
0: yes, poodles are cute. I'll give them that. I I do like poodles. I, I think they are very cute. And Masterpiece was not an exception to that. He was super cute and I liked the little thing that they carried him in, but his Pulaski just was way too outrageous with it. If
1: only I could get a whip of kennel number nine, I'll I'll be good. My life be
0: complete. Maybe that was like a one jar special. Like just for Masterpiece only
1: on from Masterpiece. <laughs> yes.
0: Well, your story wasn't... Well, I don't think either story was, like, sad. It's not like, you know, we got crazy, gory details of what happened. They were just taken and no further explanation.
1: And yeah, never seen again.
0: Yeah. But we're still going to bring this up. So...
1: So, so, so.
0: Well, I guess I'll go. Um, like I was telling you before we started recording, this so delicious, that's the brand, dairy-free, dark chocolate truffle cashew milk ice cream, or technically not ice cream, but a non-dairy frozen dessert, is the bomb.
1: It's so good. Like, like the bomb.
0: It is so good. And I'm not even like a big ice cream person, but this is so good.
1: I dig me some ice cream or milkshakes even.
0: No, No, I've never been into those like that. This, I just got it because it was dairy free. And so I just wanted to try it and it was chocolate, my favorite. So I just wanted to try, try it and I am pleasantly surprised
1: well, I'm glad you tried something and it worked out versus you trying something and it'd be like, blah, you know?
0: Yeah. So delicious has another flavor. It's like uh salted caramel, but I think it's, it's maybe almond milk, but it's just like, it's way, way, way too sweet. This one right here is like the perfect amount of sweetness that salted caramel one is like just so overly sweet. It like made me sick, but yes, everyone go out, try some dairy free frozen desserts. They're quite good. Quite good.
1: Well, you heard it here first. You heard it here first folks. Key is not one to just love everything.
0: I'm not. I, you know, I've, talked about my dairy free products on quite a few episodes. But this this right here, like my oat milk and my cashew milk dark chocolate truffle, those those are my, those have been my two delightful points in 2020. I found both of these in 2020 and these have been my high points of 2020 so far.
1: Yeah we need something. We need something for sure.
0: We do. We definitely do. So anything good you find a new brand of pepperoni that you like or anything?
1: No, I'm trying to find another um sauce brand I like because right now um um like like I enjoy spicy sauces, as you know. Yes. And as of right now, the one I like a lot is Dirty Dick's hot sauce, and it has like a has like a tropical twist in it and it's really good but but I want to I want to expand my horizon and get some different ones you know I don't want to just keep buying Dirty Dick's hot sauce over and over again I want to get something else but I just haven't like you know pushed the gas on what to get because to get these craft hot sauces you have to well in South Carolina at least you have to get them from websites because stores around here don't sell them. Getting from websites means you have to pay for shipping, and it's like, I don't want to pay for shipping, I don't want to pay $17 for one bottle of sauce that, Ooh, won't,
0: that I probably won't like.
1: Yeah, so, so not just yet, not just yet. Oh, we should, we shall see.
0: Well, but, I suggest I, the next time you're either up in North Carolina or down in Georgia, go to like a, a specialty store like the one me, you, and Ro went to. Or mm-hmm. like you know maybe like a, a Asian market or a Caribbean market like that way you can get something and not pay the shipping.
1: Okay, yeah, not pay shipping, just pay gas. Yeah, no, I'm just kidding. No, I'm just kidding. It's better.
0: Right, but you're already down there, so you know, might as well just stop and look around.
1: Stop and take a look around. Also, um, real quick, shout out to my friend Betsy, who um, Betsy. I told about the I told about the show and immediately started listening to it. And I was, like, so just, like, amazed that it was, like, that fast. Because it was, like, 9 or 10 p.m. And she was like, oh, you have a podcast? And I sent her a link, and then boom. Like, oh, my gosh, like, this story is crazy. I'm like, what are you talking about? She's like, your podcast. I'm listening to the one about um, the cowboy. And I was like, what? Like, you know, I was just so impressed immediately.
0: And on that note, shout out to my twin brother, Jay, and his lady. They both subscribed to our YouTube channel and started listening. And I don't want, I, I want to say her name is Tina, I hope I get that correct. I've only talked to her once. But, like, in my mind, I'm seeing Trina, but I'm, like, 90% sure it's Tina. So, shout out to the two of you guys. And thanks for being listeners.
1: Trina and Tina, thank you so much.
0: And thanks to any new listeners we may have. Um, our Instagram, WSTATpod or W underscore pod. That's the same for our Twitter. And we also have a Facebook group, which is we shouldn't talk about this podcast group. Join us. It's lots of fun. And you can also, also email us at we shouldn't talk about this at gmail.com.
1: And if you are on iOS, um, download good pods and keep track of our social on there.
0: Good pots. Well, with that being said, I think that wraps up our show. Well, not show ponies because Masterpiece was not a pony. Pulaski will come chop my kneecaps out for yeah, calling do. Masterpiece anything but a prize poodle.
1: Exactly, do not.
0: But I guess that concludes our prize pets. Crimes. So I'm Key. And I'm B. We shouldn't talk about this. Thanks for listening. Bye.